do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. How to raise capital during a pandemic. What can we learn from a very experienced nonprofit fundraiser who joined a Regen Ag tech startup two years ago and during this pandemic had to completely pivot their fundraising plans and was still able to raise more than half a million? Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. So welcome to another episode today with Gina Patterson, founding team member of Soar Heroes, making nature everyone's business and getting farmers paid for the ecosystem services they provide. Just a caveat, I'm an advisor to Soar Heroes. We've interviewed Jeroen Klompe, one of the other founders previously here, and I will definitely link that below if you want to know a lot more about the history and what Soar Heroes is building. But today with Gina, we're going to dive into something slightly different how you're raising during this crazy year that 2020 is during a pandemic, during COVID, and when you're raising money for quite an innovative and new business. So Gina, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I'm very much looking forward to diving deep into raising during a pandemic. Thank you, Kuhn. And to start with a personal question, I always love to ask, because I know you don't come from the soil world. How did you end up focusing all of your attention and energy on rebuilding soils? There's a long answer and there's a short answer. I want a long one. (laughs) (laughs) So I've spent the last 20 years working in international development with a big belief that the world can function differently. I've been fundraising for water projects in Tajikistan, for maternal health projects in Yemen, for livelihood programs in Eastern Africa, and all the time looking in the eyes of the funders and saying, you really are making a difference because I can hand on heart from my own personal experience, actually visiting places all over the world, have seen firsthand the impact that external support can bring communities who perhaps are limited in certain resources or knowledge and and need help to pivot. That said, there's always that challenging question of, are you going to come back in 20 years time? And will you have solved this problem? And in the end, When I discovered, actually, the first thing I I watched was Green Gold. When I discovered that, in fact, everything begins with the soil beneath our feet. Because when you fix our soil, you fix our climate problems. When you fix our soil, you fix people's resilience of their own crops that they're growing. They can be independent. And when you fix your soils, you're actually fixing your own health because it's changing what you eat. That, for me, was really literally scales falling from my eyes. 
having worked for environmental organizations, for development organizations, having worked for Unilever, suddenly there I was realizing why is it that for 20 years in all of this work, I haven't actually been talking about soil health. So for me, there's no going back. (laughs) It's pretty clear that this is, uh, you know, I I would hope that it could be a 10-year job and then it's done. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. But certainly for me, the mission is extremely clear. I think when we address how we use our land, we address all of those other ensuing challenges. And do you still remember, was there like one moment you you mentioned Green Gold, which I will link below in the show notes, which is a, a great documentary of John Liu. Did you see that and then you saw it or did you see that documentary when you were already interested in soil? Like, do you, was there one moment where suddenly you saw, I wouldn't say the solar light, but, or was it a gradual process where you got more interested in what's happening under our feet? No, I was actually approached because I live in the Netherlands. I'm from the, Scotland, I'm from the UK. Very appropriate that it's St. Andrew's Day today because I'm actually from St. Andrews. So thank you for that. <laughs> Should I say congratulations? I don't know. If so, congratulations. <laughs> we don't do the Dutch thing. Oh, okay. but sort of congratulations on someone else's birthday. But <laughs> um, And so I found myself in the Netherlands. I had been in global roles. I was in regional roles. And by that, I mean traveling South Africa, traveling all around Europe. And with a young family, in the end, you realize it's a choice that either you're home and around or it's... And I had spent... 20 odd years of traveling and in very full, all consuming roles. So I chose to look for something more locally in the Netherlands, which was a bit challenging because of my fundraising background, bringing this kind of very global horizons to the small town of Middelburg, which actually is internationally known, I've since discovered, but nevertheless, working out what can I purposefully do that is a good employment of my skills and all of my experience and somebody shared with me you really need to get to know this very cool team in Amsterdam that's working on land restoration take a look they're looking for somebody they need to start from scratch kind of on the more fundraising side and so that's when I I stepped in and interestingly that was the first time you heard land restoration or was that like did it catch your eye like oh that sounds interesting or it was like oh what's that no, I mean, through the work with Oxfam and Save the Children, of course, there's it's big streams of programs. But in terms of really understanding the nexus of soil health and community thriving and how you connect that through to the food that you eat or the clothes that you buy, I think it's the soil health component for me that was really strikingly new, if you like. Then you ended up at Soy Heroes. And how would you, I mean, in a startup there are, six zillion roles to fill and the early team fills them all but how would you describe your role if somebody asks you okay what do you actually do at soy heroes like right now we're talking november december 2020 obviously it has been shifting how would you describe your most of how you spend your time most of how i spend my time is talking with a wide range of who i call change makers so internationally people who are passionate about changing the way that we use our land, have a vision for different way of operating, whether it's from the financial world, from the food sector, whether it's farmers, of course, predominantly also investors. That said, I also speak with other organizations who are more like peers. So I guess you could describe me as a bit of the team scout, sort of having those initial conversations. I'm enormously 
I have like so much gratitude for the referrals that are made to my inbox heaves <laughs> under the weight sometimes, but people connecting us to other people. So I think really it's opening doors, aligning, discovering where our visions connect and then being able to bring that meaningfully to the team in a way that we can gain traction. Or in some cases, it's good to know that you exist and we exist super. We will, we're on the same journey ongoing and we follow each other. And it doesn't always need action when you first meet with someone, but it's about building the, my big thing is joining the dots, as you know. So it's then working out which dots need to be joined and what's the best way to join them. And if you take us back to, let's say, January, February, or maybe even March, early March, when you were in full swing of raising around with Sorry Heroes and slowly this pandemic thing became much more serious than we all thought. I certainly underestimated it greatly at the beginning of the year. <laughs> I remember our conversations. <laughs> yeah. But I also saw some things going out there saying this is going to be a very, very long winter, let's say, for fundraising. And if you haven't closed now and uh, stuff is in the bank, then this is going to, because people are going to hit the brakes, going to postpone, et cetera, et cetera. So if you take us back to like, let's say February, when it started to become slowly clear that something was probably going to derail a few things, what was your thinking then about the round you were raising and if that would be even possible or was it okay, all hands on deck, let's see what we have now in and let's see how we survive until, I don't know, next winter or something. Like, what do you remember of February last year? Or this year, sorry, we're still in the same year, actually. No, it's a good question. So coming back to your previous question, taking a step back, I've spent a lot of my time raising what you could call philanthropic funds. So I worked very much in the kind of the charity sector, the charity space. It's during that time, it was very evolving. I think in the end, if you look at it, they're big businesses and there are lots of challenges, kind of, is charity dead? Actually, is this the right kind of money? And then, as I say, I joined a land restoration organization here in the Netherlands. And whilst we needed to fundraise for grants, discovered actually most people coming through the door were impact investors. And so for me, for myself personally, this was a transition into a different kind of funding. I'm not from an investment fund background. And so for, you know, I had my own kind of concerns about, well, I don't know the technicalities of deals and how, what do I need to learn about the financial language and, and so on? And discovered, and I coined a phrase at the time, as you will remember, discovered that actually the principles are the same. In the end, it's about what's the purpose? What's your mission? What's your intention? That's what purpose means, essentially. What's your intention? And when you talk about impact, are you looking for impact that is environmental, that is social for yourself, for your pocket? And I think having those really hard discussions. And I, back then, was operating very much in the kind of the sweet spot between the hardcore investment and the charity, which, of course, we call impact investing. And the term that I coined, as I say, was the investable grant. So how can we ensure that whatever kind of funding is given, that it is building towards something that is going to become investable or is going to be sustainable financially? In other words, it creates its own business model in the end. So there's a number of things in there. There's business model means profit. And let's face it, profit is and can be good. The question is, is it your main driver? And if purpose is your main driver, and this is where I love what Paul Palman has been uh, speaking about, particularly with the Business for Nature community. Actually, it's not profit for purpose. It's profit 
through purpose. And the reason I share this is because when COVID struck and it became clear, and I think we were extremely naive, I'm a little bit disappointed, if I'm honest, by the Western kind of hemisphere, because it first arose in China and there was a sense of it's over there. And by goodness, it really, those are words that everyone can eat because... Uh, the latest research in Italy shows it went around already in September last year. So Doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. But exactly. They see a lot of, they, they froze a lot of blood samples from another research and now they went back to see and they had antibodies in there, like a good 11.6 or 12% of the people in certain cities in the north had already antibodies of uh, COVID-19, which is very interesting for our... It oh, January it was like, oh, it's there, don't worry. It's not going to travel. And it kind of, that also comes to my point, which um, is, in the end, it's about perceptions and it's about realities. And people talk about it started in China and actually, you know, good on the research there that actually identified it and was able to flag it to the world when probably it started somewhere else. And so my big rule of thumb with fundraising, and now this brings me to the COVID challenge that you've asked me, is never assume. You don't make assumptions. You need to peel things back, really understand. And what it is, is what it is. And particularly in my role as a fundraiser, it's not for me to, to some extent, challenge, yes. But in the end, if there's core values and they are different to other core values and they have very clear pathways that do not diverge, then it's a case of respecting, respectfully acknowledging that that is a path that goes in a different direction to yours. So there's some subtle work there. In terms of when COVID struck, the way I see it is what I was imagining back in February, I was pretty, pretty bold. My view was, okay, this is the moment for impact investment to really step up because, in fact, it doesn't change a thing because we still are not using our lands properly. We still need to change how we work, you know, and how we see farmers, how we understand the food that we put in our mouths, the clothes that we we choose to wear probably makes it more important yeah exactly and we've very much seen that since that has definitely come to be the case that there is now a sharpened understanding and appetite for going deeper into growing things better building back better growing things better <laughs> is what i'd say and did the funders agree that's because you can be bold but if the other part you're talking to is sort of going back down, like everything risky, because we've seen that with some people, with other people, yeah. actually not. Like it's really a two response. Some people move forward and see this as the moment and push with their portfolio, with their investments, etc. Some others are, okay, let's talk in 2021 because I'm not making any sudden rushes. Also, because you saw in, in March, like the stock market crashing, oil markets crashing. Some people lost a lot of money, made it probably back in, in hopefully back in the last months, but it was a very scary moment on the financial market. So there was a lot of yeah. like sudden tension. So what was there? You felt bold. What did the other people feel? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. In fundraising, I can't imagine why you'd be in fundraising if you're not passionate. You're very passionate, completely believe in what you're doing. So it's relatively easy to be bold. As you say, at the same time, it's naive to ignore what's going on around you. <laughs> you have to listen. 
And I'm also very strong. I was sharing with somebody the other day, why is listening not the first language that we're taught at school? It's so extremely important sometimes to actually stop and hear the noise, if not at least what's actually being said, to hear what is and understand other people's perspectives. So we were both deliberately in order to keep going because it was very important that we didn't just kind of hit the pause button that's all heroes and say, okay, there's a pandemic, people are nervous, let's wait. There's no time to wait. So by being bold, we kept our confidence, we kept our resilience. And at the same time, we did really lean in to understand, okay, what does this mean for the investment community that we're working with? There, We do need to apply a big dose of caution. We need to work with that. How can that look? And so we went from two commitments of a million euros each, almost on the verge of signing, that had to go on hold. And the best thing that I think, strongly believe, the best thing that we did is to, instead of pushing that, is to immediately stand on the same side and work with those parties to see how can we reconfigure this? Because it's working together. In the end, it's not a trans, you know, yes, okay, funding goes from A to B, but it's not a transaction as such. It's a relationship. It's a journey. It's co-creating that you can have impact and really change something. If you're change makers, then you're doing it together. So when you have a crisis that can feel very polarizing and feel quite difficult, because suddenly if somebody is putting pause on their investments, you don't want to push. At the same time, if you are listening and you are working together, then you find new ways through. So we changed our approach and went for convertible loan for a much smaller amount and worked out that amount based on what do we need to get to our next milestone. And that milestone is very simple. It's completely what we're all about as Soil Heroes. It was how do we bring new income to farmers? So a million euros of extra funding to farmers who are transitioning to regenerative agriculture. And it's around 4,000 hectares that would be restored. And all of the beautiful things that they achieve for us by farming with nature in restoring those hectares. So we worked out that we needed around a million euros ourselves. So with a million euros, we could keep the team running, build all the extra functionalities, team members, and achieve that. Get the hectares on board, yeah. Yeah, bring the farmers on board, support them in their transition, and achieve that milestone. So by going into a much smaller, so effectively we were looking, okay, and you have to take the long-term view we need to do a short-term lean round that keeps us nimble, keeps us able to, you know, we can keep flowing, that secures the connections and relationships that we have. Put some money on the in the pockets of farmers and show that you can do this. And then with the, the strong conviction that if you're able to put more than a million euros into the hands of farmers, you'll be able to raise more or to, able this, to build this machine bigger, bolder. Exactly. Yeah. Proof of concept. So by getting proof of concept, if we could essentially secure the team, prove that there is an appetite within companies to pay farmers, not just talk about Regen Ag, because there have been some great statements made by some very significant companies, but actually then having capital flowing directly to those farmers for restoring those hectares. But with that proof of concept, we could then look at scale up funding. And actually, that's been the right thing to do, because as we, although it does feel like we're entering a long, hard winter, 
that said, are you just kind of a bit to what you were asking earlier? What I observed is that the crisis, the corona crisis, really sharpened what people were all about. So those people really driven by impact and with who had the capacity to do so, of course, went deeper impact and said, no, we need to stand stronger. We need to, now is the time to step up. And I think that that sharpening is, has been clarifying. So where are we now? In We're at the end of November. So you mentioned these two groups, they both had a million committed, which both were put on hold. What would you say is a good snapshot of where the fundraising is now for that million to keep going and basically build the first show of product? Where do you feel you are? Because you said sharpening, does that mean there are more people involved now or more investors, more funders? What has been the last months basically on the fundraising side with that refocus of we're raising 2 million from two funders and then we can build a lot to we're raising 1 million from potentially in a convertible loan from potentially a lot more people to build this first product for 4,000 hectares and 1 million to farmers. What, what has been the response to from both those two? I'm very curious, obviously, they were already committed, but then had to pause and others potentially that came on the table. Really striking. One has postponed for down the road and has said, as soon as things are flowing again, we will look at how we'll be able to step in. And we have a beautiful letter of support recommending us as partners and stating their intention further down the line to work with us and join the Soul Heroes journey. So actually, it's a dream scenario. We have our pipeline ahead. We already have key stakeholders who are, what, if you like, are lining up ready for the scale-up round. So for the convertible loan... Which is all great, obviously, if you get to the scale-up. Like, you also need the money now. You need some of it now. You don't need all, but enough to keep the fireplace going. Exactly. Otherwise, yeah, you never get to the scale. Yeah, so you then you need to be smart and you need to be constantly listening and flexing and zooming in, zooming out. You know, you have to move with the situation. If you're just completely going to stick to your guns and be stubborn and like, this is how we're going to do it, then yeah, then it becomes very difficult and probably won't make it. So we've actually chosen to close the round early. We're two thirds of the way there. And by doing so, we already have signing customers for Soil Heroes, so companies already onboarding and farmers onboarding, and we're introducing them and telling beautiful stories about how they are together creating change. And by doing so, so by closing our round now, we are already changing the status of the company. We can immediately move into scale-up funding. And that has, in the end, it will be interesting a year down the line to see if this holds true, but has done us a favor because there are a number of investors who are looking at the scale-up round for Soul Heroes because they generally prefer to invest larger amounts. And so the small convertible loan is not the most suitable for them, but they're very keen to step in further down the line. So in fact, if you look at the flow over the period of time, in fact, it makes sense and it works. It's just felt like a bit of a bumpy sideways ride to get there. So I'm extremely thrilled with the support that we have from our current round of investors who already are looking ahead, thinking about once we close this, what it means for the next round. Some of them have made reservations for the next round. So this isn't a short-term thing. It's, as I said earlier, it's a long journey. You're in it for the long game. And I think 
by that sharpening that we talked about, you find who really are your most aligned, your true tribe, your dedicated team around you. And I really consider that the investors I work with to, they're really an extension of our team. And then in fact, you become more efficient. You can go more direct and arguably faster because you have the right tribe around you. A sort of a philosophical way of saying, it has been a pretty tough year and we've had to flex and change, but it's not been a bad thing in the end. And you've had, you've raised capital, which I think for many, I mean, you said two thirds down the line, I mean, we can all do the calculation. You raised capital in a very challenging year for many. I think everybody had a bumpy ride. If you were going up or down, it doesn't really matter. It's been one of those years or actually not because nobody ever had a year like this at least not in, let's say, like you said, the Western world. So what would you do different? Like if you were going into, like we're in that period where we look back at the year, etc. If there's one thing you could do different, would you do anything, first of all, differently? Or would you say, I would do it exactly the same. This is how it was supposed to be. And if there was one thing, what would you do differently? One challenge that was brought to us, as you know, I'm from an investment background, and we chose to raise a three-year budget, which was 6.3 million. And we chose to do that upfront because of the time it takes. You know, when you're a startup, and that's also a very important point here. When you're a startup, who are you investing in? You're investing in an idea and you're investing in the team. So if you're investing in an idea and the entrepreneur, you're going to need a lot of time with those people to really understand what their intentions are, to know that you can trust their competence, the way that they work, that you're going to enjoy. I mean, that's the other great thing about the investors around us. They're kind of really the ultimate definition of critical friends. They're really sharp and clear and challenging in, and they're also very supportive and nose aligned in the same direction. So, you know, those critical friends around us um, have given us that, you know, have helped with the confidence so there was some counterwind, let's say, that we were being too ambitious to raise all the money up front. But as I say, you really want to protect the time of the entrepreneur at the same time as them being available for those investors who are essentially early stage, taking a risk. And, you know, there isn't a, a product already that they can see and invest in. Yeah, you're saying like you have to spend so much time anyway investor entrepreneur like let's raise as much or let's raise quite a significant sum instead of just a few hundred thousand because the time is the same and let's use that time with the entrepreneurs and the team as wisely as possible obviously making a bigger i mean if i remember correctly it was connected to milestones it wasn't all the six million in one shot no, no, so it indeed, was obviously yes, staged yes. but at least you invested the time up front with the investor and if he or she or them said yes then you knew okay, we've invested this for a three-year budget and for et cetera, et cetera, which in pandemic time might be a bit more challenging. Exactly. So I think people might expect my answer to be, well, the thing that I would change is that I wouldn't have gone for the full amount and that instead we'd have started with the more classic style of a small amount, get a basic MVP, show the concept and then go back funding again and then do fundraising again. That would have been three rounds of fundraising. But that's not your answer. No, no it's not. <laughs> um, I've thought long and hard about this because obviously very keen constantly I'm always learning and seeking to learn and I think being able to reflect critically on the steps so far are very important for the steps you take again you know further in the future at this kind of very delicate stage of being emerging from startup and being a going concern 
And no, I wouldn't, I don't think I would change it. And the reasons are that it helped us, by set, that was our ambition. And it has helped us to find the right people who believe in that ambition. And that's coming true because people are standing by us in spite of COVID and the movement has only grown. Our external network has only grown. It hasn't slowed down. And I believe that if you want to achieve big change, at some point you need that big hairy goal at the start. And it might not work out like that. Exactly. But yeah. But it's brought us the right people. You put a bar, you put a bar pretty high. And then yeah. during pandemic, as hopefully everybody, you were flexible of what you could actually, what was actually on the table and you could take. Yeah. yeah. And as a result of that, after just two years, as I say, we also have a very healthy potential pipeline already mm -hmm. at play. So a lot of the hard work has been done now that I think will really make things hopefully flow easier in the future so i think it's uh it's still been the right thing to do and any tips tips is always difficult but any advice you would give to others that are in, in a similar situation facing this crisis or facing another crisis i mean for that matter i mean depending where you are you have things more regularly that we were not so used to but what would be your main advice or tip to other people that are fundraising in challenging circumstances let's say Number one, dialogue. Everything starts with dialogue. In the very first instance, don't be frightened to pick up the phone and have a very vulnerable, open discussion. If things are hard, it's important that you talk more and that you're really clear about where are the boundaries, what are the possibilities, how does this sit, and understanding also short-term and long-term because things might be challenging right now, but that doesn't change somebody's purpose And the worst thing you can do is, for example, let's say you're, you've said, oh, Gina, I, I could invest 50,000 euros in your idea. And I say, wonderful. And then you phone me, I'm sorry, Gina, with COVID, it's not possible. It's not going to happen. Am I then going to stop talking to you and say, oh, well, Kuhn didn't put his money in, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Of course not, because the connection that we have, the joint intention that we have, it's a very peculiar thing, but... Somebody once said to me, you don't look or sound like a fundraiser. And I was like, what? Not quite sure what you mean by Probably that. Probably a good thing. Um, no. <laughs> well, I took it as a good thing and I certainly yeah. meant it as a good thing. And in the end, money is actually the last thing that you talk about. It's critical. And in the end, it's the point you have to sign a deal and you need to be able to pay for the team and things need to be able to happen. But it's that's never the discussion. It's never around the funds themselves it's actually about what are we going to do together so my advice in a crisis is although you might be feeling really pressured about how are you going to pay the next bills and how are you going to see through to the next months or retain the talent that you have at that moment in time the most important thing you can do is rather than thinking about the funding per se is to understand who are my pillars who is my network and How do we want to approach this together? I think the a very important part for me is to be totally upfront as well. If you're having a tough time, being able to, so we've actually had this, you know, speaking with our founding funders, and we should briefly talk about that as well, because it's a beautiful example of going in for the six mil upfront. Actually, through that, we found our founding funder and really they are, the absolute core of everything we're doing. They provide stability and gravitas and understanding 
confidence and empathy, uh, really tremendous. And the moment that you think you're going to have a hard time, the best thing you can do is go back to those people. And so we shared with the founding funders, actually, we're not going to make it to the way that we thought we would. Thank you for your honesty. And the feedback that we had from them was, you know, there's two reasons, the concept and the team. And the third reason that they invested is they know that when times are hard, they're going to know about it. When we're having problems, they're going to know about it. And that creates a level of ability to do things in the future. Then you can really change things because you're being really upfront about the situation rather than putting your head in the sand or or being sunk by the enormity of the challenge. So being authentic and being open and being honest. And what was very lovely is they came back and explained, actually, you know, if we could, we would help you on your running rate. And I said, actually, it's never even crossed our mind to come back to you because you've already done your job. You know, you funded a third of the budget and (laughs) we never intended this to be one set of investors coming in. And it's very important for the longevity of what we're doing and our impact to have the right people on board. And it's never just one person or one family. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, to be honest, very simple and very plain advice. But I think you need, need to breathe, believe in what you're doing, Talk and listen. Talk, listen, be open and not hold on too tight. I don't know if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. by that, but sometimes being able to let go just a little bit and be on the scary roller coaster. If you've built good foundations, you're going to come through it the right way somehow. So trust. You know, in the end, it comes down to. Comes down to, yeah. I think it's excellent advice. And I want to take that as a bridge to shift gears a bit and ask you, I mean, I know you keep saying, I I don't have the investor background. I come from the philanthropic fundraising world, but you also are used to quite large amounts. I'm very interested in what if you would be an investor yourself and you would actually have the portfolio of of a a nice amount, let's say 1 billion to invest. What would you, I mean, I'm assuming regenerative egg and food, but you could also invest somewhere else. What would you focus on? What would be your prioritization in terms of if you had to put a billion to work? Well, I should check first. Are you sure it's still only a billion? Because I believe you've asked this question a few times. So maybe somewhere that amount has increased. (laughs) I usually ask a billion, but if you want 10 as well, I'm I'm curious about how you prioritize because you've worked with large amounts, let's say. So if it makes you more comfortable, I can also add a few zeros. But I'm, I'm interested, what would you invest it in, in terms of categories? What would you focus on? What do you think are the most important pieces at the moment in region egg and food? This is a different way of asking the same question, obviously. Totally agree. It's about the prioritization rather than the amount. I don't know how we would implement it, but I would love to throw a ton of money at retraining agronomists so that no matter for whom they work, their foundation, their basis has been in farming with nature. Because once it's in your system, it doesn't go away. Once the scales fall from your eyes, there's no going back, as I said earlier, for myself, for my own personal journey. And you see it with farmers. All farmers want to do good by their land. It's just they might not necessarily have the right tools or the right space, actually. They might even have the knowledge, but the right space. So in the first instance, I would love to, and those agronomists, to actually first spend some time with small-scale holders who are already farming in very regenerative ways in say, the global south, where we completely turn things on their head. Instead of what can we bring to them, we say, actually, what can we learn? 
and we start to bring the world more into a central place of understanding rather than this divide of, of kind of where the knowledge is and how we have to transfer it. So bringing agronomists to the global side, I think that's to basically sit down, listen and learn from smallholder farmers who are applying agroecology, regenerative farming, whatever we want to call it, and think like hopefully plant a seed that they will bring back when they go to their enormous farms they're advising in Australia, Europe, the US, etc. And, and your hunch is that that seed won't go away anymore. Like once you've seen what's possible, even if you work for the big chemical companies, you will figure out ways to not work for the big chemical companies anymore and work with your farmers that actually that's supposed to be your client. Yeah. And of course, the key question is, what are the uh, return expectations of the fund? That's yours to decide. Could be zero, could be partly super high, super low. I mean, you're, you can build a portfolio. Well, so I would love to, I don't have the expertise myself, but there are definitely movers and shakers already. For this amount, you can get a team. I mean, yeah, for this exactly. amount, you can get a team in place. Don't worry. There are people already thinking about it. And I would say in the very first instance, the fund would not report impact based on euros returned. It would report impact based on nature restored. So, and leave it as its own value rather than trying to translate that into monetary value. Why is that? I completely agree. I don't like the constant, everything has to be a dollar thinking, but I know a lot of people do. What's, you said at the beginning, so at some point that changes or you want to keep it that way for as long as the fund lives? No, I think I would leave it that way. And the, of course, key thing there is then how would you measure that? Um, as of course, goes without saying investing in an organization like Soul Heroes would be an obvious thing to do <laughs> and being able to scale that. I think as long as it can be measured, then you're actually incentivizing in the right way. You're not incentivizing for profit, you're incentivizing for purpose. And then how do you then link that to increased value in the value chain so if there was a way that we could also underwrite and i don't know how we would do this but underwrite the profit margins a percentage of the profit margins for companies that are prepared to account for their investment in nature in a different way and that are also willing to transform their supply chains really like not just saying, yes, we're going to do it and we'll do pilots, but actually stop immediately with all chemicals other than the ones that farmers need in order to get their soils off the chemicals that they're addicted to. So there's a certain transition period, but making, in the end, we need dramatic change. And I just, I feel like we are still working within the bounds of what we know. And there are some very interesting networks and thinkers at the moment looking at financial levers for change, looking at sort of agro kind of pivot points of how you can do things differently. And I think if with a fund that you could literally just rewrite the rules, then I would get the best team. I would also find the most hardcore, critical, purely focused on profit investors to work also with us so that we can really understand the headwind that we're going into and be able to figure out the answers to all of their fears, concerns and questions. And the most obvious thing would be to have as much of that money as possible going to farmers to make the transition. So, for example, why not invest in a kick-ass marketing team? that can help farmers on how they talk about what they do. Because 
no farmer's got the time to go, you know, even just me getting technically set up to speak to you, okay? A farmer, are they going to have the time to go and have a professional photo shoot and learn how to tell their story and Takes a day. work out what they're going, you know, and also it's very personal and it's about yourself. So that's not a very easy thing to do. Whereas I do believe that if we could have more visibility of farmers' stories, of what the reality is of when someone walks into a shop and they pay the price of a banana, that they actually understand what it took to grow it and the faces behind the food that we are eating. It would be like an, a communication agency purely focused on telling the real story of farmers or the extensive, holistic, not long form, not just the face on the package and three lines, because there's a lot more behind that, which we never know. We don't know about our coffees. We don't know about our potatoes. We don't know about our onions. We have no clue about our grain. And we have no clue about our milk or animal protein, etc. And obviously also not about our bananas. Like there's the whole world, unless you go out and actually spend time, I think I would argue most people don't really know what it takes to grow that regeneratively or non-regeneratively. Like in general, we don't know the challenges. That's a, I think there's a huge, there are a lot of stories to be told there. Yeah. There are a lot of stories to be told. And the question is, how do stories make money? Well, actually, some of the best companies in the world, they make their money in the end by telling stories. Yeah. And of course, uh, an example, you know, is always close to our heart because the first uh, funding into the Soul Heroes Foundation, Patagonia, there is no one who can tell a story like Patagonia does. And they say, don't buy a jacket. And of course, for them, profit-wise, it, everybody then goes and buys a jacket. Point being that when they tell their stories, people pay attention and they listen. And actually, people move with, they vote with their feet. They will come to a company because they know they're sourcing better cotton and they are actually treating all their employees fairly and they're building the communities around where that cotton is grown and ensuring it's full access to all, all of society. So I think discrimination within, there's not much talk uh, is starting, but the discrimination that occurs even within the food supply chain, I think if there's a way of addressing that, how do you then relate that back to profit? Well, in the end, if it means that farmers are going to build the resilience of their soils and therefore they don't need to irrigate as much, and we've I've seen it with the Klomper farm, the difference that it makes. Once you're really farming with nature, your inputs go down, farmers are going to be more viable which means their children are not going to leave the countryside as quickly. They'll be maybe more likely to take on those farms. Or they come back. They come back. No, no, we've seen those examples. I mean, people keep asking, like, is it more profitable? And like, I think if you dig down, it definitely can be, or quality of life is much better, or both. But they're definitely not less profitable. I think that's the general. It really depends where you are in your transition. But there are some very successful examples, small, large, on any continent that have made or are in the middle of a transition and are seeing huge payoffs in all all impacts they can imagine, from biodiversity to yield to family time, quality time, etc. And if you can measure that in a really holistic way, so impact meaning not just impact on soil health and impact financially, but impact on the experience of people working on the farm, impact on the family, as you say. I think impact uh, really through all of the different lenses. I think we heard it a number of times, like it's fun again, but how are you going to measure it? It's very, it never comes back yeah. in an impact report, but I've heard many farmers say, this is actually, it's fun again. Like this is inventing things. This is figuring out what works on my, on our land. This is going back in old history books and see what they did before, combining that with the new tech, figuring out new tech, buying the latest drones, 
like this is fun again compared to in many times conventional farming is a lot of stress and not very fun yeah it's putting the joy back in farming and also being proud and i think the community component is very underestimated you know the psychological aspect okay if farming is naturally a lonely experience and perhaps may not always be the most extrovert wanting to connect with everybody but to know that people are admiring and loving what you're doing and to know that you can see other people who are doing the same and not feel like you're so strange in the way that you've got this very messy looking field you're the weirdo you have to have it behind the farm only and on the front side you know i remember stories of farmers in western australia who'd been busy with with uh, permaculture for a long time and at the front they had their bland monocrop fields and behind their houses they had all these beautiful very diverse no no it's it's something we underestimate very easily because if you live in a in a relatively small town with a strict social not control but it's very difficult to be different and if you have messy fields many people look at that and look at you weirdly and we've heard stories from People switching to organic in the U.S. and their children were no longer invited for soccer practice or were no longer picked for the team. And that was for organic. It wasn't even the messy regenerative transition some people go through. Or SLM, I keep telling that story, when they started in Australia, they were called stupid land management because the neighbors were all looking at them like, oh, this is going to fail for sure. And luckily they came from the outside and of course they and they proved a lot of things. But the first years, their operators and their, their farmers were looked upon really, really weirdly and so it's huge pressure thing, which is interesting and something we need to, the story piece is crucial there. Yeah, exactly. And so, and then just uh, closing off on the fund, I think the business model then being, and, you know, I've learned a lot of this through, of course, working with the clumpers. In the end, if you're then improving by improving soil health, whichever way you do it, because there's so many different means, as I say, you know, whether it's encouraging the farmer to be able to share their story and therefore they are encouraged and they're incentivized, whether it's through being rewarded for the, I don't like the word, ecosystem services, the the greatness that it gives us from nature <laughs> when you put nature back into the field. Let's put it that way. Whether it's paying them for that or whether it's retraining the agronomist, regardless, their asset, their farmland, their home, their business is going to increase in value because there is more resilience and it will, in the end, be growing more reliably and better crops than degraded land. And if there's a way that we can measure that, then I think you can start to talk about how you give your reward back to the fund. So it's not my area of expertise, but I would definitely come with the... That's why I asked the question, because otherwise it would be very boring. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I'd get a really expert person to work with my crazy ideas and where I'm very focused on mission and purpose. That's how many funds start. Don't worry. uh, And as a final question, because I want to be conscious of your time as well, I usually ask a final question and then others follow. But so we take away the fund, but you have a magic power, you have a magic wand and you can change one thing in the food and egg space. What would that be? I'm not allowed two things. <laughs> You're not allowed one thing and then changing it into two. It's not Aladdin, no. So then I would be torn between either literally not a single person is allowed to walk down the path of a farmer's home that isn't promoting nature in the way that they are growing what we rely on. Use, eat, burn. That's one. And the other would be that every single time someone picks anything up 
off the shelves of a supermarket. There's immediate transparency and they understand what they are purchasing. So, you know, as a mother of young children, I hate it that I actually don't know, is this really good for my child or not? And am I feeding them in the end something that actually is bringing, because, you know, what you put into the ground in the end is what you're putting into your own body. It's that simple. We've made it enormously complicated and we've made it very sophisticated and we have, you know, the whole world global food system is extremely opaque and in the end it's extremely simple. You know, what you feed the grass, kind of like was put to me uh, by uh, someone, is, you know, what does the plant eat? So what you give the plant to eat and what the soil eats, in the end, is what you're going to eat. So I think a level of transparency that means also consumers make more considered choices so that it's not a price game. Because in the end, of course, if something is a bit cheaper on the shelf and you're managing a budget, you're going to be weighing up, okay, well, in the end, it's about price, not about taste, not about nutrition. So I think a magic wand across kind of across all of the shelves in a supermarket that somehow gives you that spotlight of, oh, this is bloody tasty, it's really good for you, and it's not ridiculously more expensive. Oh, I'll take that instead. I think it's a good way to close this interview. Thank you, Gina, so much for sharing in this weird year, the end of a weird year. We're almost at the end, actually. And of course, congrats with all the progress, and I'm pretty sure we'll be checking in. But for now, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your openness, and for the amazing advice you give to others that are struggling or are let's say in the grind still figuring out how to raise capital in 2020 which has been a crazy year thank you very much kuhn and i should say on behalf of the whole community we're all so super thrilled with the work that you do and you are one of those great connectors and supporters so thank you very much thank you so much if you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investing in regenerativeagriculture.com slash course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities, to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investing in regenerativeagriculture.com slash course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.